All right, Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. You know, occasionally pastors are asked, preachers are asked, um, if you could only preach one sermon, where, where would you preach it? Where, where would you go? What would that sermon be? And so, you know, as, as I approached this last Sunday, that, uh, that question kind of weighed on my mind. What, what's one message that I want to leave you with? And I was drawn to this passage out of Colossians chapter 1, because Paul is encouraging believers who, who are struggling in this church in a town called Colossae, and he begins his letter to them by, first of all, expressing his gratefulness to them, and then essentially encouraging them to keep their eyes focused on Christ. Now, a couple of things that's important for us to know about the, the city of Colossae, or the town of Colossae, is that it was one time uh, a pretty major city, and then as, as things happen, trade routes changed, and the town of Colossae kind of got bypassed and was overtaken by some larger towns nearby. One of them you might be familiar with, a place called Laodicea. And, and so Colossae was just kind of this, this, this place that, that people forgot about. And, and maybe like uh, the, the children of Israel in the, the book of Exodus, they'd wondered if God had forgotten about them too. And then what happened is uh, these false teachers began to infiltrate into the community and even into the church and began to teach uh, this false doctrine. And so Paul's writing this letter to this church whom at this point, he's sitting in prison in a Philippian jail, and he's never met the believers in Colossae. The church there is being pastored, as Paul's writing this, by a man named Epaphras, who, uh, who was a, a disciple of Paul's. So Paul knew the pastor, but he didn't know the church, and yet he writes to them to encourage them as they deal with this false teaching, as they live in the middle of a godless culture and, and to encourage them to remain faithful. And so as, as I began to think just through, you know, what, what, was this, what would this message be, this last, last hurrah, this last message to you? I, I was drawn to particularly this passage and the way that Paul reminds these believers who already knew this truth, but he reminds them that Christ Jesus is the one who's in control and call them to live their lives in submission to him. And so if you will, uh, one last time, stand with me as we read the word of the Lord this morning. We're going to uh, read Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 23. And the word of the Lord says this. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to stand and declare your word. And I pray through this passage this morning, our eyes would be focused solely on Jesus Christ. Bless our time here together. Speak to us through your word. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Now, as I said, Paul at this point had never met the Colossian believers. And yet, right off the bat, in this passage, he prays for their spiritual growth. He prays that they would be able to endure in this culture where they find themselves, a culture that was increasing, it seemed, in godlessness. And this is what he says he's praying for them, right? In fact, in verse 9, he says, We haven't stopped praying for you since we heard about you. And look at these things that he's praying. We're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Paul wanted his readers to know what God was doing in and through them. He wanted them to be filled with the knowledge of God so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So he didn't just want them to, to know God's will, to know about him. He wanted them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, and he wanted them to walk in godliness. He goes on, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. He didn't want them to be stagnant. He wanted them to grow. Then he says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Now, now keep in mind what I said about their culture. Their culture was uh, one that was increasing in godlessness. It was turning away from the things of God. And false teachers were coming in and saying, well, you know, maybe the scriptures say this, but we don't think you really have to follow that. Or some other false teachers were coming in and saying, well, actually, you know, the, the, the Bible says this, but we think you ought to take it about 10 steps further. And in order to really be godly, here are the additional things you need to add to that. Right? So you had people who said it doesn't matter and people who said, no, not only does that matter, these things matter too. So you had this confusion and these, these false teachers. You know, maybe like the 
Colossian believers, you might look around at our culture and, and say, it seems like we're living in an increasingly godless culture. And so I would say, primarily I would say to, this, to that, that this is nothing new. So any time that people say, listen, people are turning away from God, they don't care about the things of God, read your Bible. That's not new. Romans 1, um, Paul describes what could be our culture today. It's, it's nothing new. Believers have always lived in a world that resists the things of God. Uh, I, I was reading this week in a, in a book from a, a Puritan pastor named Thomas Watson. And this is what he wrote in 1681, okay? So some uh, 350, no, 340 years ago. I'm not that old. So 300, 340 years ago. Listen to, listen to this. Let us keep up the vigor of our zeal in degenerate times. Let us be as lilies and roses among the briars. And I love this. Sin is never the better because it is in fashion. Nor will this plea hold at the last day that we did as the most. Now let me take 16th or 17th century language and, and, and move that into today for us. The more we live in a godless culture, the more important it is that we live godly lives. And I love the, the analogy there. Let us be as lilies and roses among the briars. Sin is never the better because it's in fashion, right? The, in other words, what, what he's saying there is, you remember when you were a kid and perhaps you said, but mom, all my friends are doing this. And I don't know about you, my, my, dad, had, my dad had the, the kind of classic dad response to that. Well, if all your friends were going to jump off a bridge, would you join them? And I, by the way, I swear I would never use that, and I have, right? Just like that, I will never tell my kids because I told you so, and until I did. Because you know what I learned? Sometimes there's no better reason than that, right? Why? Because I said, I'm your father. So, Right? It doesn't matter what everyone else does. As believers, as he says here, this plea will not hold at the last day that we did as the most. Believers, we are called to live lives of godliness, no matter what our culture says. We're called to live according to the truths of the Bible, no matter what our culture believes and no matter what our culture may believe about Scripture. God's Word has always been rejected. That's not going to change. So let us be committed to living lives that bear the fruit of godliness. Paul said, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. And unless we think that, it's, that he's calling us just to bear down and, and, and get through it, this is what he says with that. So you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. 
So it's not just a grin and bear it situation. No, he wants us to live lives of godliness in joy. I've shared this before, and, and perhaps you can think of some folks that, that come to mind as well. Um, I, I have a couple of pictures in my mind from, from my home church where I grew up. People who just always had this scowl on their face. And it didn't matter, it didn't matter what song we were singing. This guy, I can think of one guy in particular, he really hated what he called the little ditties, which he meant um, the, the newer praise songs. Um, but you know what I noticed? His face didn't change whether we were singing Amazing Grace or a newer praise song. Or my favorite was Blessed Assurance. And Blessed Assurance. Seemed neither blessed nor assured. That's, that's not the way we're supposed to live life, right? We're, we're called to live lives of joy because of the salvation that we know. And Paul, to these people whom he's never met, but who he knows are enduring some difficulty, he prays that, yes, they would endure with patience joyfully. In joy. So as we continue to walk in godliness, live with joy. I want to skip down. We'll come back to verses 13 and 14 in just a second, but I want to skip down to to verse 15. So he's just prayed that they would grow in Christ, that they would grow in godliness. And now what he's going to do in this next section is turn their attention toward this Christ whom they are to follow. And I think in, in verses 15 through 20, Paul gives us what's probably the, the most epic description of who Christ is in the entire New Testament. In fact, uh, Paul writes it down for us here, but it's possible this was an early hymn or maybe even a creed that the, that the early church recited or sang when they came together. And this is what he says. Just, just consider what this picture that Paul paints for us here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. I think I've shared this before, but this helps us understand when we go back to Genesis 1 and we read about God creating everything and it says that God speaks and, and stuff starts to appear. Paul would say that Christ was at work as well. The Son was at work with the Father creating all things. Not only did he create all things, look at verse 17. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. So he's not only the creator, he's the sustainer. And I would tell you this is just as true today, 2,000 years after Paul wrote these words, than it was when he wrote them. He is still in control. That's why we can trust him, even in the middle of, of a culture and a world that doesn't understand the things of God, even in the middle of, of an ongoing worldwide pandemic. We can trust that God is in control. That doesn't mean that we act foolishly. It doesn't mean we live foolishly. But it means we trust that no matter what happens, he's in control. We can trust him. And then verse 18, and this is especially important for us as we, as the, the, the body that's known as First Baptist Church enters this time of transition. This, this is the thing that does not change. He is also the head of the body, the church. 
as, as we have spent these last six or seven weeks um, walking through this, since we made the announcement that we were stepping away, um, one, one thing has remained on my mind constantly through that time. You know, this church was founded in 1898. I was going to say right here on this corner. Actually, it was just down the block. It was at the corner of 12th in Michigan. This church existed for, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, 118 years before the people of FBC ever heard the name Kyle Bierman. And it's going to exist long after we step away. As I shared when, when I made my announcement at the end of March, pastors come and go. There, there's a sense in which every single pastor that I know is an interim, meaning there is a beginning time and there's an ending time. Whether that is three years or five years or 50 years, there, there comes a day where every single pastor who's serving in a local church is no longer the pastor. What doesn't change is that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And just as this church existed to proclaim the gospel for 118 years before I ever walked through these doors, this church is going to continue to exist to proclaim the message of the gospel long after I'm gone, long after the next pastor's gone, long after the next 10 pastors are gone, if we hold fast to the word of God. That's the key. That's the thing that makes all the difference. So don't forget that whoever the under-shepherd is, for however long they're here, Christ Jesus is the head. He's the center. He's the cornerstone that holds the structure together. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. What it means there by saying he's the firstborn from the dead, that he's the one who sets the example for us of what it means to experience life eternally with the Father. Because he rose from the dead, defeating the power of sin and death once for all, we have the promise of eternal life. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so through these verses, we're simply reminded that Christ Jesus is God in the flesh. He was God sent to us. And what we call the incarnation simply means God becoming man setting the example for us what it looks like to, to live lives of godliness, dying the death that we deserved, reconciling everything to himself. And then really beginning in, in verse 21, Paul ties up something that he mentioned back in verse 13. So I want to back up, and we're just going to close our time here in this passage by looking at the reality of salvation. Verse 13, he says this, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. 
Now, just consider that for a minute. This is maybe, as, as I said, the, the description of Christ in, in verse 15 through 20 is probably kind of the most epic description of, of who Christ is in the New Testament. I would say this uh, verses 13, verse 13 is probably the, the single most epic description of what happens at salvation. Because Paul kind of zooms out from what happens on the on the individual level of us being reconciled to God and, and instead helps us to see what's happening at the, at the spiritual level, the supernatural level, where he has actually rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. He took us from living under the power of sin and death and brought us into God's kingdom. In verse 14, he says, In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then skip with me down to verse 21, because now Paul's going to zoom in and explain a little bit about what happens on the personal level with this. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now, so, so that was us before salvation, right? Alienated. Hostile in minds, evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. I don't know about you, but as a believer, it's, it's good for me to hear these words, to be reminded of what I was apart from Christ and what happened the moment that I uh, placed my faith and trust in Christ, the moment that he saved me. On a cosmic level, he transferred us from, a, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. On a personal level, he took us once alienated and hostile to him and brought us into his family. So the, the charge then is that as people who have been saved by Christ, that we would live lives that look like saved people, right? That we'd be, uh, he says here, that we'd be, uh, we'd remain grounded and steadfast in the faith. That we would not be shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You know, I, a lot of times, one of the things that concerns me about the, the Christian culture that we've created is uh, we, we've almost made it sound like, well, I was saved by grace, but I remain saved by my grit. Right? You know, man, God, God saved you, and amen, and hallelujah, and now you really got to work to stay saved. And that's, that's not how it works. Right? We, we have the promise in, in Romans 8.38 that... Um, Nothing, and Paul lists several things there, and then, then he says nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As followers of Christ, we are secure. If he saved us, he's going to hold us to the end. Now, is there work to be done? Well, yes. It requires diligence. As we've talked before in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews warns us against drift. And the reality is we don't drift toward godliness. I've shared this analogy before as well, but if you've ever been playing, if you've ever been to the beach and you've been playing in the water and not paying attention and you know, okay, I put my stuff right there, 
And then you go and you play for 30 minutes. You look back and suddenly your stuff isn't there. It's 100 yards that way. Well, only one of you moved. Right? The, th- the, thing about, the thing that's so dangerous about spiritual drift is that it happens just like that. We get distracted and we don't know that it's happening until we wake up and go, what happened? And at one point, I was so close to Christ, and, and now I'm not. And, and the reality is, one of you changed. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Now, now in reality, he never moved from you. He never left you. There are things that come into our lives that can hinder that fellowship with him. We don't drift toward godliness. We drift away from it. That's why Paul tells his Colossian readers here to remain grounded and steadfast in the faith. Keep a close watch on yourselves so that we don't drift away. And then Paul, I I think as an encouragement to his Colossian readers, says this. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Let me explain why I think that's an encouragement. You don't have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to sharing the gospel. One of my favorite stories about the way someone came to know Christ involves Charles Spurgeon, who's one of my favorite preachers. As a young man of 15 or so, on a snowy night, he wandered into a Methodist church in England. The preacher was out on that night. Now, layman was filling the pulpit. And Spurgeon actually remarks at how unremarkable this man's speaking abilities were. But the thing that the, that the man repeated over, maybe because he didn't know what else to say, he was probably scared out of his mind. He just repeated the truth of the gospel. Repent and be saved. Repent and be saved. Repent and be saved. And under that unimpressive preacher, Spurgeon was convicted of his sins and came to Christ. Would later go on to become arguably the most influential preacher in all of England's history. One of the most influential preachers in in church history, period. And he was saved because a man agreed to fill the pulpit and didn't know what else to say, so he just called people to repent and be saved. And it worked. And the fruit of that was that tens of thousands of people heard the gospel, repented of sins, trusted in Jesus. And even today, Spurgeon remains a key influence among evangelical Christianity. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to come up with some, you know, we have all kinds of flashy gospel presentations. Do do you know what's most important? God, God created everything good, but sin fractured the way the world operates and separated us from him. But God loved us so much that he sent 
his only son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for your sin and to my sin that we might be reconciled to him. And now, if you will repent, turn away from sins, you can be saved. That's it. That's the gospel message. Don't have to dress it up. And this same gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. It's how we were saved. Now we have the opportunity to share it with others. And that's what First Baptist Church has been doing right here since 1898. So as I close this morning, let me simply encourage you with this. Remember the, the sin that God saved you out of. Remember that no matter what our culture does, our charge as Christians stays the same. May we, like the Colossian believers, remain grounded and steadfast in the faith. May we not shift away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And may this gospel continue to be proclaimed in all creation under heaven through First Baptist Church of Alamogordo and thousands of other churches just like us across the United States and around the world until Jesus comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you so much for the opportunity to have shepherded this church for the last five years. I thank you for your word that speaks powerfully to us, that reminds us that that what we're facing in our world and our culture today is nothing new. Believers have faced that for the last 2,000 years. I pray that we wouldn't lose heart in that, that we wouldn't use that as an excuse, but that we would remain grounded in the faith. We would be committed to holiness. We'd be faithful to proclaim the truth of the gospel to a lost and dying world. Give us the strength and the power to do that through the Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.